I have heard a number of people who have been reading through or studying through Acts, especially as we have been studying through it. I've been talking about it with pastors and lay people, different people who, who are into the Bible, and many have confided in me that when they get to about this part in the book, they start to kind of lose interest. They feel like it loses steam a little bit. And of course, we feel bad saying that because we don't want to imply that there's something wrong with the way the book is put together. It's just our reaction to it. But they say it gets a little slow. It's just Paul being dragged from one guy with a funny name to another, and every time he gets somewhere, he gives some big, long address. He's trying to get to Rome, and then, spoiler alert, he gets there, and, like, nothing happens. And and maybe that is part of the beauty of it. I think maybe the reason that we don't find this as compelling as some other passages of the Bible, maybe the reason why these chapters from maybe 21 most of the way to 28 are largely ignored is because Paul is no longer out doing things. He doesn't have any agency in them. Things are happening to him. In fact, in in writing fiction, you'll often hear that as a critique. Hold on, this character is having too many things happening to them. They're reacting all the time. They need to be doing something. Maybe also it's this sort of undercurrent of Roman red tape. I mean, in the passage today, we have the actual full text of an inter-office memo written out for us. I mean, that's not all that exciting, I guess. But these last chapters are often, I think, given short shrift because to me, I feel like this is where it really starts getting good. And I know it's silly because it's all the Bible to say this is where it really starts getting good, but this is kind of where it really starts getting good. We got secret vows, we got spies, instant tactical decisions, covert night missions, and I find it all very exciting. To just very briefly recap where we are, Paul had been warned not to go back to Jerusalem, and from a strictly human perspective, he should not have gone back because his very presence, his showing his face, is enough to cause the Jewish resistance to his mission to boil over and for a mob to form and all sorts of stuff to happen, accusations of defiling the temple, Roman intervention, chains, and imprisonment. Paul has been targeted by mobs before, both spontaneous and planned, both Jew and Gentile, but what he's facing here is different. It's a whole new level of persecution, a whole new level of opposition. First of all, before, anytime he had this kind of heat, he could just move on. He was always making these big loops in these big missionary journeys, and if someone started uh, making trouble, he'd say, well, I'm out of here, and he'd move on to the next city. Yeah, you'd have people might follow him from Thessalonica to Berea, but that's just basically like from Lansing to Flint. I mean, it's just a little trip, and then he moves on yet again, and they forget about him. Out of sight, out of mind. He doesn't have that option now. He is incarcerated. He is a prisoner. He, he can't just say, all right, I'll move on, and we'll put it to rest. He's not free to travel. He's at the mercy of the Romans, or maybe not at their mercy, but at least at their sense of justice. Secondly, Before this, Paul's enemies had always seemed content just to neutralize him, eliminate him from the equation for the moment. I have the feeling that if this had happened 10 chapters earlier, Paul had been arrested, his opponents would have said, okay, fine, he's arrested. He can't cause us any trouble at the moment. That's fine. That's good enough. But not anymore. At least not these individuals. These who have decided that they want him dead and they will not rest. In fact, they won't eat or drink until he is dead. They've murdered him. 
Last week, I listed a number of ways in which these last few uh, chapters remind us of and are reminiscent of Jesus' own trial. Uh, and there are many ways, and perhaps one more is the way in which Jesus' accusers and Paul's accusers alike, and Jesus' uh, judge sitting in the seat of authority and, and those sitting in authority over Paul in the temple and even those who are agents of Rome don't seem to believe the charges against him. Do they really think he's taken a Gentile into the, the holy place of the temple? Why not call some witnesses and, and give some specifics? Why not even bring it? They never bring it up again. Do they really believe he's been teaching everyone to abandon the law? Again, let's have some witnesses. Let's put some feet on this thing. No one ever does it. It all gets very vague very quickly. Why then are they so suddenly adamant to stop him once and for all? The answer is they want him to stop preaching the gospel. They will throw all sorts of other reasons that they want to shut him down, just like happens often today. But at the heart of it is we don't want to hear that gospel anymore. And, and we don't want you out there speaking. And, and today, of course, we, as, as I see the opposition to the gospel just ramping up at record speeds, it's even verboten to even speak the idea of absolute truth, let alone the gospel specifically, that Jesus is the only way, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. And we have this notion still, we're hanging on to this very outdated notion from decades and decades ago where we can say, hey, no, no, don't worry about me, I'm harmless. I'm just out here preaching the good news. That couldn't bother anyone. Paul begs to differ. So does the blood of thousands and myriads of martyrs proclaiming absolute truth that Jesus is king. And today proclaiming absolute truth will have a price tag attached to it. And Jesus says, count the cost. Before you follow me, make sure you are willing to give up what you will have to give up. A friend of mine, Nate Pickowitz, said on Twitter yesterday, remember, John the Baptist was beheaded for having a biblical view of marriage. There's always a price attached to proclaiming absolute truth. The culture will not want to hear it. And because of that, Jesus came in the last verse from the, the passage last week to Paul and comforted him, encouraged him. And we see God doing this throughout the scriptures, all the way back to Genesis in Genesis 15. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. What wonderful language there. In Joshua 1, God says to Joshua, this newly uh, elevated leader over Israel, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. And then here in verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. But not if some of these assassins, these zealots have anything to say about it. And I think what we're dealing with here are again the Sicarii. And you say, come on, pastor, that's three times in a row that you bring up these cloak and dagger assassins, these, these kind of temple ninjas, if you will. Exactly. How can we say these aren't insanely entertaining, exciting, enthralling pages as we read them? We were introduced to the Sicarii, which remember means literally dagger men, uh, back in chapter 21. There was a reference to, wait, aren't you the Egyptian who went out with 400 of these assassins, these Sicarii, into the, the mountains and you were preparing to, to bring a full-scale attack? And Paul's like, not even a little bit. And then I mentioned last time that Ananias, this high priest who was very cozy with Rome, eventually would be put to death 
by the Sicarii at the beginning of the Jewish war because of how much he let the world and the pagan world specifically dictate what happened in God's kingdom and even in the holy temple. And here then we see that there are a group of more than 40, and if they're not Sicarii proper, they're a very similar group with almost identical tactics who've decided that they are going to take an oath that they are going to kill this man, Paul. The oath is mentioned three times, and it's referred to both as they are bound with an oath and that they have taken a solemn oath. To us, this might sound like something that's just dramatic, right? All these people always taking solemn oaths. To them, this is very serious. Reading in the, the law, the Old Testament law, you read pages and pages of uh, how, it, how it works and what it means to take an oath and how you must fulfill it and, and when you can be released and that sort of thing. Oaths in the scriptures have consequences. Remember, Jesus' teaching on it is just don't take them. Let your yes be yes and your no be no because there's, there's great consequences. Uh, we read in the, the Old Testament, when you're in the NIV, I think it says, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I don't, dot, dot, dot. In the King James, it gives us a more word for word. May God do to me and more also, if I don't. I remember Jezebel says that. When she wants to kill Elijah after that thing on Mount Carmel, she says, may Baal do to me and more also if I do not kill that man by such and such a time. She's saying, if I don't kill him, may my God do worse to me. And that's what these men seem to have said. If we don't kill him before our next meal, may God kill us. In fact, one translation says they placed themselves under an anathema. Now we have to assume that at some point they finally broke and started to eat something, knowing that they were, in Paul's own words, eating and drinking damnation unto themselves. Some commentators will tell you how in the Mishnah and even in Deuteronomy there are you know, allowances for rash vows and vows that become impossible, but I don't think this meets any of those criteria. These, these guys had to give up at some point because God will not be thwarted. But they had a plan. And it wasn't a bad one. I mean, they knew no matter how hardcore your terrorist group, if you're going to try and breach the fortress Antonia, where there are, there are a thousand Roman troops garrisoned there, and you're going to try and break into a jail cell and kill somebody, you don't have a prayer. It's going to be absolutely impossible. It would be suicide, effectively. And so they need the help of the chief priests to draw him out into the open, draw him out into the street. And they form a conspiracy. These zealots, of course, were not crazy about how cozy the chief priest was with Rome. Later on, again, they would kill him for it. But the threat of the Christ followers and the gospel spreading like wildfire was enough to make them form a tenuous alliance. Let's set our differences aside for now to eliminate this problem, this apostle. Reminds us a bit, again, of Jesus' trial when it brought together Herod and Pilate, who had formerly hated each other, but then became BFFs after that. I think it's worth noting that it seems as though the Pharisees have been left out of the conspiracy, since they were most rec recently on record saying, hey, maybe Paul has a point. Maybe he's not so dumb after all. And so they're going to be part of the Sanhedrin that calls Paul back, but they're not going to be privy to what is planned, that he will be killed in transit. And the way, of course, that these Sicarii worked is they were literally cloak and dagger. They would hide the little dagger in their cloak, get in the midst of a crowd. A few of them would descend on someone, stab him many times quickly, and then kind of fade away. 
Almost like what movies tell us happens in prison if someone is, is, is killed. Very cowardly, very brutal and awful. And that is what they are intending to do here. Now, with the retelling of it, a little bit later in the passage, we find out that by the time this comes to light, they've already made the request. They're doing this. They've made the request to bring Paul, and they are waiting for the tribune's decision. It is unfolding. It is a clear and present danger, and I think it kind of infuses the whole passage with an energy and a suspense that maybe some others don't see. I don't know. Or maybe the problem with these passages is with Paul being dragged all over in front of governors and kings and shipwrecked and all these things, it's hard to apply. But I don't think it's that hard to apply. We've all been there, basically, right? You walk into work. That one coworker, you know the one, comes up and takes you aside, says, listen, I got to tell you something. More than 40 of your colleagues have sworn a sacred oath that they will not eat until they have killed you. <laughs> Maybe not so much. How do we apply something like this? I think that, that James Boyce gets on a very good track when he starts talking about the tenuous uh, conspiracy, the, the setting aside of differences and, and sort of joining hands between the, the leadership and the radicals in the street. And he says it's not too different from how Satan, our great enemy, who, who stalks about like a roaring lion deciding whom he should devour, how he puts aside his differences with the world, which he doesn't love, he hates but says, I'll use you, and I will, I will work together in tandem with you to bring down believers. That there's something there that, that, as Paul reminded the Ephesians of the reality of principalities, cosmic powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places, enemies that will stop at nothing to see us fall. And just as the Sakari thought, we've got our opening, if we can get him to transfer him from the, the uh, fortress here in the barracks over to the temple complex, that's our opening. So the devil and the world think they see the opening in our sinful flesh. The sin nature that remains within us against which we contend. These are our, our enemies. We don't struggle against flesh and blood. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And together... We'd be better off having to just deal with 40 cloak and dagger assassins. But then we see the way that Paul's life is saved, that Paul is, is brought along and carried along, maybe even against his will, ultimately to where he wants to be. It starts with some visitors to his cell. And as a Roman citizen, even in chains, Paul would have been given a lot of benefits, one of which would have been access to his family. They could bring him food and other amenities. And in this passage, Paul's nephew walks into the room. And every time I read Acts, when Paul's nephew randomly shows up, it takes me out of it for a minute. I'm like, you have a nephew? You're an uncle? I know it makes no sense, but having a nephew seems like a, not a very apostle thing to do. Like, is he a cool uncle? Is he a weird uncle? I don't know. He's probably a weird uncle because he's you know, always shaking deadly vipers off his hands and being mistaken for a god or something. But as his nephew comes in, it always reminds me anew that this guy, Paul, yes, he has statues made of him. He's had icons of him all over. There's cities named after him, but he was just a guy. Just like you and I are regular men and women. He was just a guy, and God was working through him as he submitted to God's will, and he was willing to suffer for the sake of of the name. We don't know much about his family. Obviously, he had one. 
And here we find that his nephew has a piece of very important, very explosive information that's been whispered about amongst the Sanhedrin. And we don't know how he came to have it. Uh, My guess is that like Paul, he was sent by their prominent family from Tarsus at a young age to Jerusalem to be trained up under probably a prominent, famous rabbi like Paul was sent to train under Gamaliel to kind of grow in knowledge and wisdom to eventually attain true greatness himself and sit on the high council himself. If that's the case, it would make sense that they could be whispering and talking about these secret things and no one would even notice that this kid that's always around is just sort of lurking around. Thankfully, he felt a deeper loyalty to the apostle than he did to the Sanhedrin. Now, why do I keep saying kid when it says in your passage, young man? Well, the Greek word is a diminutive form. And I think it's quite clear that we're not dealing with an older teenager, a young man in that sense, from the language and from the context. I would guess maybe my son Calvin's age or Cameron's age, 10, 11, 9 even, a younger boy who's on the verge of, of, you could call them, hello, young man. I think the biggest hint here is that when this big, tough soldier, this Roman soldier in charge of a thousand men comes into contact with him, he takes him by the hand and says, okay, tell me. I mean, you don't see that happening with a big, tough soldier and a 17-year-old. No, he's being tender and kind like one would with a little child that's a bit afraid. And this would have taken some courage for him to do this. You think snitches get stitches wasn't the policy at that time in that place? Absolutely, it would have been. I wish we knew more about the nephew. I wish we knew his name, but we don't. Does Paul just have the one sister, or does he have more? Does he have any brothers? Why is Luke, who loves details, so stingy with details in this one area? Again, what's what's his name? What's his age? What's his station? What's the background here? And I think the answer is because this isn't Paul's life story that we're dealing with. It's the story of what God is doing by the power of his Holy Spirit through his church to bring glory to his own name. And Paul clearly has the same perspective as well. He wouldn't want this to be dominated by details of his life. It's also noteworthy here that in that culture, both Jewish and Gentile, to some degree, children were kind of considered persona non grata until they're useful. And in a world where children were often excluded from most of life, counter to culture, no one in this whole narrative dismisses this kid. No one says, oh, come on, you misheard, or stop being silly, or you just want attention. Go, get out of here, go play. No, take him by the hand, sit and listen to what he has to say. In his perfect providence, God does what he often does, which is to use the small things of this world to save his anointed. 1 Corinthians 1, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of of God. I think this is a reminder to us that we should not overlook anyone in the body of Christ, that we don't just tolerate kids to be around because we have to. We don't just train them up because they're the church of tomorrow. No, they're a vital part of the church today. What if that kid hadn't been there? What if he hadn't been brave? What if he hadn't been listened to and believed? Paul probably would have died. Well, Lysias believes him. 
He is the tribune again, the, the leader of the entire uh, enterprise, and he acts quickly. He knows that he's a soldier, not a magistrate, not a judge. Once he's restored order, he has no authority to declare a verdict or release him or give him a sentence. And so he says, I can protect him and move things along at the same time. So he sits down to write a letter. And I love that we have this letter, word for word. I mean, it's translated from the Latin original to the Greek, but we know that Luke is an expert at doing that. And so we have the letter. We can read it. It gives us the ordinary pattern for a secular letter. It's called an epistole in the Greek. And then we can compare Paul's epistles and James' epistle to that right there in the text and see where they deviate and and how this whole Jesus thing takes even the form and changes it and soaks it in grace. It's kind of neat. But the way this letter is written, it's really a master class in how to spin the truth into making you look good. He never outright lies But man, does he gloss over the parts where he almost flogged a Roman citizen and all this other stuff. He he paints himself in a very good light. And notice in the letter the lack of any actual charges of anything punishable by Roman law. There's this weird limbo, this legal limbo that Paul's going to enter into here and get stuck in of not really being charged with a crime and yet having entered into the system and he can't just be released until there's some termination of proceedings. So he writes the letter. It's a short letter, puts it together, puts his seal on it, and then he spirits Paul away under the cover of darkness and a very big, strong, heavy guard heading to Caesarea. And I mean heavy guard. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. There's a thousand guys at the Fortress Antonia. That's half the garrison he just sent. If you don't have a footnote, because I'm pedantic, I have to say this in your Bible, mark one that the word here for spearmen is super obscure. It might not mean more guys. It might not mean more soldiers. But even if it was 270, that is a big response. He takes this seriously. Paul is now going to be on a horse in the dark, surrounded by the most efficient soldiers on earth. And he is going to be brought to the the kind of central location for governing this part of the world, and 40 untrained cowardly assassins hoping to stab him in the back are out of luck. They would have no chance whatsoever to carry out their oath, their vow. This is literally the third, maybe the fourth time that Claudius Lysias has saved St. Paul's life. And he is not even, that we know of, a believer. I'm quite sure we would have been told if he was. He's just a guy doing what he knows to be right. I guess what I'm saying is, had I thought about it a dozen years ago, my son might be named Claudius Lysias Bartles. And could you fail with a name like that? Should we have another kid? Seems like a waste. One of you, get get someone to use that name. Notice God's use of circumstance here, though. When we feel the most despair, the most bitterness, the most anger toward God, it's often because we look around at circumstance and go, God, why isn't this better? Why does it seem like this is working against me? This is not at all what I ordered here. Certainly, this is what David does. Psalm 44 is one of dozens of lament psalms. There are both personal and communal lament psalms throughout the book of Psalms. And in 44, he says, you have made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. 
You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. Get it right, God. This is not how it's supposed to be, is the subtext. And in your life, you may currently feel like this. Like your circumstances are exactly the opposite of what you would have set them to be if you were setting up the board. You might feel like you've gotten to the part of your story, chapters 21 through 28, where things are just happening to you and you don't have any agency to do anything. You're just being dragged around from place to place, powerless. In chapter 21, we read of Paul's going from Caesarea to Jerusalem and there's an air of triumphantness in there. And now we read about him going from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And he must have been thinking, what did I even accomplish? None of it worked. Now I'm in chains. Am I better off than I was when I initially left Caesarea? Probably not, in that he has been arrested. It may seem like he was coming, now he's going. It's all meaningless. And yet, in Psalm 121, we read that the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Sometimes I don't know if I'm coming or going. But whatever we're doing, God is in charge. He is sovereign. And He is not just sovereign over the big picture and the rise and fall of kings and the borders of nations, but He is sovereign over every aspect of our lives and every circumstance. God uses his sovereignty over circumstance to further his will and often in the pages of scripture and in the the annals of church history to rescue his people. Paul would rather not, I would guess, be imprisoned and targeted like he is. I'm guessing that if she had a choice, Mary would rather not have been a poor young nobody girl in a backwater nowheresville place. Nor Aaron would have wanted to be a slave in Egypt Or Joseph dragged away from a life of privilege and wealth and made first a slave and then a prisoner. And yet, it was also God's providence, his control over circumstance, that put the Pharaoh's cupbearer in the same dungeon as Joseph, causing him to be released, giving him his freedom and his elevation and and for him to be used to save all of Egypt and even beyond from a famine. And it's God's providence that put that kid, his nephew, in the right place at the right time and used Roman military power of all things and Roman sense of justice to to guard Paul with a whole detachment of soldiers and weapons and horses and bring him safely on his way to Rome, proclaiming the gospel all along the way. This is certainly the fulfillment of the prophecy Agabus gave a few chapters earlier When he tied his hands up, he said, you're going to be tied up, shackled, handed over to the Gentiles. And yet when he gave the prophecy, I doubt even Agabus knew that in that happening, Paul's life would be saved. And Paul's mission would even be furthered. It's become a cliche that God works in mysterious ways. Usually when I hear it, it's someone saying it in kind of a sarcastic way. And yet it's true. God is working here in mysterious and unusual ways through the circumstances of the moment. These centurions and soldiers have been co-opted by Jesus to serve temporarily as his army, protecting his man on his way to Rome. I think we often have the feeling when things are not going well that maybe back earlier when things started going off the rails, Maybe back then, God could have reached down, kind of bumped me back on track, made things better. And when I, mean, when I say back on track, I mean back the way that I had intended them to be. 
back into the track I chose. But now it's too late. Everything's just too big of a mess. It's all too tangled up. I don't see how even God could untangle this. And yet Paul, who'd been rejected by his own people, whipped and flogged unjustly and publicly, falsely accused and imprisoned, and was now a man marked for death in a conspiracy rubber-stamped by the highest authorities in all of Israel, is able to write, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I think it's noteworthy that Peter and Paul, the two greatest of the apostles, the ones who are most celebrated and and for whom the most gold has been applied in, in their statues and cathedrals, these two were both honored by Jesus with promises of how much they would suffer for him not how much glory they would have. And when we are disheartened, if you are even now disheartened by your circumstances, if it seems like things have gotten so turned around and upside down that even God cannot fix them, trust me, the circumstances are what God tends to use to further His mission. And He promises that He is working together all things for the good of those who love Him, who are called by His name. Paul undoubtedly felt lonely. He felt abandoned. He felt perhaps even that God had abandoned him to some degree. In 2 Timothy 4.16, looking back at the end of his life, he says, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Now, I think that probably refers to his first defense in Rome, but it might refer to even these defenses because these came first. And, And you have to wonder, why did God come to him and give him the pep talk and say to him, don't worry, I'm with you. You're going to make it before all the difficult stuff started. Why didn't he hold off? I mean, because what Paul was going through in that moment was not, he dealt with that, like, that's an average Tuesday for Paul. Yeah, yeah, they dragged me into the barracks. They put me in some chains. They said that they were, you know, they wanted me to die. But now things are going to get more and more difficult. They're going to get progressively worse. And we're not going to see Paul hearing from Jesus in the same way. Why would it be? Undoubtedly, the days ahead of Paul must have felt all the darker for that lack of revelation. Harry Ironside said, God is never closer to his people than when they cannot see his face. But I have to imagine that they wouldn't mind seeing it when things get tough. Even when we don't feel his presence. Even when we all have, all we have is the memory of his closeness and the memory of the promise, we know that he is with us. And Paul, as these things continue to unfold, is able, if he focuses on the right aspect of his circumstances, to see that God is with him. He is rescued from the Sicarii. Very few people could ever say that. By the time you knew they wanted you dead, you were already bleeding on the street. But he's rescued. The first night, they go 35 miles to Antipatris. Then, the next day, everybody but the uh, cavalry goes back, and and they take him by horseback at full speed, 25 more miles to Caesarea on the coast. That was the Roman headquarters for Judea and much of Syria. They bring him to Felix. He's a governor. We're going to meet him really next time. Don't worry. He's he's like uh, the successor to Pontius Pilate as procurator of Judea. And Felix says, where are you from? He says, Cilicia. He says, okay, that's under my jurisdiction. I am going to handle your case. Now Paul is, yes, imprisoned. Yes, somewhere associated with Herod. Not the best, but he's safe 
And he has the promise, you will testify to my name in Rome. When we look back at this, though, I think what makes it stand out as as kind of a ho-hum chapter in a book full of miracles and spirits and all sorts of things is that none of it's impossible. Improbable, but not impossible. Okay, a boy overheard the plot, and he happened to be related to Paul. He had the courage to report and even repeat this to the tribune who believed him, which was something. It's a series of rather unlikely events, I suppose. And we have to say, Paul has in his mind a notion that he is going somewhere, but more than that, Paul has really what is a promise of immortality until he arrives in Rome. Remember, just like uh, Simeon, we're getting close to Advent, next week's Advent, so Simeon was given this promise, you won't die, you won't taste death until you have seen the Lord's anointed. I bet he took chances all the time, right? I can jump that far, no problem. Because I haven't seen the Lord's anointed. He knew he was immortal until God's purpose for him was fulfilled. Did you know the same thing is true of you? You are immortal until God's purpose for your life is fulfilled, until you have given your final testimony. Here we know that Paul will be carried safely to Rome. No wicked men, no conspiracy, not even a few dozen Sicarii assassins waiting in an ambush can override that. No weapon formed against me will prosper. That's what the scripture tells us. And we know that it is true because God is the God of circumstance. Until his purpose for us is fulfilled and he calls us home. Here we are. What will we do with the time we have? When Paul will land in Rome, it will not be because of some random change of events. Murderous religious fanatics, Roman bureaucracy, corrupt governors, red tape. It will be because God wills it. Remember back in 21, they're all trying to get him not to go to Jerusalem. And he keeps on saying, I'm going, guys, I'm going. Stop it. You're breaking my heart. Shut up already. And we read, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. That is what is happening here. Jesus' words serve to comfort. Yes. But the subtext is also, yeah, I'm in control, but... You're not going to be acquitted here or in Caesarea by Felix or Festus or Agrippa. You're going all the way to the top. So Paul can see in the moment God's providence that has kept him alive to this very hour, but he can't see forward exactly how he's going to get to where he's going. It's like I mentioned last time, it's like one of those foggy days where you're driving and you're, you're only able to see about 20 feet and there's a certain amount of trust and faith involved in it. Jesus hadn't told him how or when he would arrive in Rome. And sometimes we only know what we have in the moment as well. And when times are difficult and it's hard to see how circumstances could ever be turned to to work for our good and it's hard to see how things could ever be okay again, all we have to hold on to is, well, he's brought me this far. That's what Paul has right here. Well, I'm still alive. Much to the chagrin of lots and lots of assassins and and high-powered people. I'm still alive. He's brought me this far. Why wouldn't he see it through to the end? And it's not any more impressive when God works through the little things. And it's not any less impressive when he works through the little things. Or here, the little ones. True, there's nothing unexplainable, but it's clearly God at work when you read a passage like this. 
It was God's providence that placed Claudius Lysias as tribune at that place, at that time. A good and just man. He certainly wasn't perfect, but he cared about what he was doing. And he cared about doing what was right as far as he knew what was right. God's providence put him there. God's providence placed Paul's nephew where he placed him. It's easy to look around and go, bad circumstances. Well, prison, that's bad. Guys want to kill me, that's bad. But Paul could also say, God's providence, my nephew, this man who who cares enough. I mean, you can imagine if a kid walked in and Paul said, tell the centurion what you told me. The centurion might have said, I don't have time for you. Get out of here. Visit's over. We can look at the circumstances and what God is doing and can do and may do. You know, in these last eight chapters that often strike readers as anticlimactic, the whole span of it only has one real, like, miracle miracle. And even though it's a cool one, it's it's related in this very blasé way for some reason. Like, snake bites him, he shakes it off into the fire, they sit and they wait for him to die, and he doesn't. Okay? It's so matter-of-fact. And then in this particular passage, what's the big deal? Paul's got a nephew who has a secret, and this army commander is courteous. That's not impossible, maybe improbable. In your life, you might look around and go, why aren't there big miracles? Well, look for something that God is doing that isn't impossible, and yet he's lining it up particularly with his will. Wow, that was improbable. If I ask you, how is God working in your life right now? Or what has God done in your life in 2019? I'm not looking for you to blow my hair back with a story that makes me gasp. It doesn't have to be one of those stories. Those that give glory to God, sure. But those stories aren't necessary for us to see God at work because we believe he's sovereign. It's because we believe he is capable of all things that we don't need that. I watched a debate not that long ago. It was two Christians versus two atheists. They were talking about the existence of God and some other things. And, and uh, the, the two Christians were Jeff Durbin and James White, two, two guys I really like. And then the two atheists were from this like, really militant Utah atheist group. And they kept on saying again and again, no matter what the topic was, they just, it just kept going back to, name me one miracle that you've seen happen. Name me one time that you prayed and some miracle happened that couldn't have happened. And both of them said, we have stories we could tell you, but we're not going to. Because you're missing the point. Because we don't have that criteria. This sounds an awful lot like the devil to me. Putting God to the test. God already did the greatest miracle. He created us out of the dust of the earth. And then when we fell into sin, he came and took dead, dead souls and brought us back to life. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. That's amazing. How is God working in your life now after that? I want to hear about the circumstances. I want to hear about what God has been doing where even you look back and go, I thought all of that was bad. And I wrote a psalm of lament. Maybe I just wrote it in my mind. And now I look back and I see God was at work. I want us as we leave 2019 and enter into 2020 to look at our circumstances as a church and say, what might God do? Yeah, there are always things that you could focus on and go, yeah, that doesn't look great. Oh man, we got to deal with that, that problem, that thing with the facility, that thing with the bank account, whatever the case. But there are always circumstances that God is turning to the good of those who love him, who are called by his name. Let's focus as Paul did on how we are being used in the mission how we are being protected by God's sovereignty and how we are being empowered by his providence.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this example of a a chapter in Paul's life that didn't include some amazing miracle, and yet all the same was still clearly you at work in his life. Lord, we pray we would see you at work in our own lives just as clearly, that we wouldn't ignore those chapters of our lives like people have tended to ignore these chapters of Acts. That, Lord, we would just give you glory for every little thing that you do, not only through creation, but through providence. And we are so thankful that you are a God who sees everything and knows everything and cares for us deeply. We pray that you would, you would give us that confidence in you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.